0: Welcome to the Saturday Blitz podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogolke. Welcome to the Saturday Blitz podcast again, everybody. I'm Zach Bogolke. John Mitchell is with me yet again this week. Um, We're here today to talk about a couple of things, beginning with the saga at Florida um, and then looking at the coaches most likely to be fired this year before capping our week's podcast with a look at some really memorable fan traditions that have always you know captivated both John and I so uh before we dive in how are you doing this week John
1: doing well doing well we got some current events I guess to kind of discuss this week to go along with the you know off-season topics that we conjure up just to have something to talk about so that that'll be fun
0: yeah, I really will. And uh, yeah, that's where we're going to dive right away. Just looking at everything that's been going down in Florida recently. I know it's uh, something that people probably have at least a blanket understanding of, given they're listening to a college football podcast willingly. But, you know, uh, I just wanted to get your basic thoughts around this.
1: Yeah, uh it's kind of been a really tough last I guess week and a half now for for Dan Mullen in Florida. You know, based on his first season in Gainesville just about the results on the field, you know, it was a resounding success. You know, going from, you know, 4 and a 4 and 7 season the year before he got there to immediately lifting them up to a 10 and 3 year that included a New Year's Six bowl victory over Michigan and kind of uh and a beatdown of Michigan in the, in the peach bowl, it was. So, you know, a lot of momentum being built in the swamp and then, you know, his first real stumbling block happened with the whole, you know, Jalen Jones, the quarterback getting accused of sexual assault and leaving the program. And then that kind of having a domino effect with their highest ranked recruit from this last year's class and Chris Steele deciding to enter the transfer portal and, It came out after the fact that he was roommates with Jalen Jones and had requested before all of the stuff went down to be moved um, and was told they wouldn't do that until the summer. They'd reevaluate everything, kind of thought that was unacceptable. And then the allegations came down and it apparently really traumatized the kids. You can't blame him uh, for wanting to get out of there. And that's another one of the things, Zach, that you and I have talked about on this podcast already countless times. Uh, that it's sometimes bigger than football why kids want to leave a university. In this case, is certainly that. It has nothing to do with playing time or anything on the football field. You know, he feels like he wasn't listened to by the coaching staff. He had concerns that he didn't feel were taken very seriously. And, I mean, for a kid his age especially, I mean, that's a traumatizing thing, for anybody, particularly because the assault allegedly took place in that particular dorm room. Yeah, and I do want to stress the fact that these are, you know, allegations at this point still. But there is a lot of smoke surrounding them. Um, so, you know, that's a traumatizing thing for him. And I mean, I can understand that he feels like he needs a completely fresh start to get out of to get out of Florida. And I as much as Dan Mullen's going to want to try to keep him. And obviously just because you enter the portal doesn't necessarily mean you're gone. You can, you can come back out and stay, but I mean, it does seem like a thing that he's going to be gone. I believe he went home to California two weeks ago before he even entered the portal and it kind of left the university. So it kind of seems like a done deal. And that would be one of the cases where a waiver would certainly be in order for him to be able to play next year. I can't really imagine a scenario in which the NCAA would deny that, that would be an all-time bad look. Um, I guess you can never put anything past the NCAA in that regard, but I can't really imagine that wouldn't be the case. And obviously, he's going to have suitors. That's not really the story here. The story is everything going on with Florida to do with that. And then they've had bad news after that too, Zach, on the recruiting trail for some future classes where they've had uh, three guys from the 2021 class that was kind of – earmarked as the class for Dan Mullen because recruiting success hasn't been great for him so, flor- so far at Florida. I believe they signed the um, close to a top 10 class this year, but losing Steele, you took that out there, it's a lot more mediocre because he was their kind of um, prize jewel of the class, right? So yeah, recruiting has been something they've kind of fallen behind a little bit on, especially when you're going up against in the same division as a Georgia who's pulling in top Two recruiting classes the last two or three years now and then Jeremy Pruitt recruiting well at Tennessee I mean we know Dan Mullen can coach but he's got to get some talent in there and it's a big concern now especially with kind of the the bad publicity that the program's gotten over the last week and a half where where everything goes from here and obviously there's still time for the 2020 and 2021 classes for him to reel those kids back in but that's, it's going to be tough, and I, it really depends on how this situation gets handled. And I mean, what do you think the best course of action is for Mullen at this point?
0: Well, you know, obviously there's some level of damage control that has to happen. The program's bleeding recruits. Um, you really do have a, a real crisis of confidence here in terms of, you know, how much is your team going to back you considering you proved that you did not back one of the players who really was, like you said, a a pivotal a pivotal piece of that recruiting class. And, you know, to see that, to see that even somebody like that can kind of be left in the lurch when they come with a legitimate concern, it, it really is going to raise things for recruits down the road. And so really the one thing you can do to mitigate that, you've got to rebuild trust with the players you already have there. That's the biggest thing. And, you know, what that looks like, I can't necessarily say. That's really something that those individuals in the locker room really have to create for themselves in terms of what that rebuilding process looks like. It's not going to be easy and It's really tough, especially in a division where they were supposed to be sort of taking that next leap this season. And, you know, immediately this makes it look, you know, what does this do to morale around the program? Like we are talking about guys who are leaving, Um, but what does it do to all the players who are staying behind as well? I think um, any sort of thing like this has a snowball effect where it doesn't just affect the recruiting classes that do or don't decide to keep their commitments, but also to those guys who are already there. And, you know, if you're going to rebuild any... um, you know, strength to the recruiting classes down the road. It has to start with rebuilding the trust with the team you have here, or else this is just going to be a tanked season.
1: Right. I, you know, I think the the recruiting stuff is going to be something that really affects them down the road. I think this season, they're still going to be really, really good. Uh, I think they have a lot of talent, uh, but the gaps in talent was already evident. If you watch, you know, Florida and Georgia play last year, Um, in Jacksonville, you could see, I mean, Georgia had the better team. They ended up, it was a close game for a little one, ended up pulling away. And that gap's only gonna get wider if Mullen's not able to match these top ten, top five classes with top ten classes of his own. And we know with Mullen that he can pull a lot from even, you know, middling recruits, as we saw at Mississippi State. You know, he didn't always have he did top five or ten class at Mississippi State, was able to pull, and have some really good seasons there. But, you know, you're talking about winning. The way he won in, at Mississippi State in Starkville is acceptable at Mississippi State. He's going to have to win a lot more at Florida. They're not going to be content with, you know, eight or nine win seasons kind of repetitively. They're going to want to compete for not just SEC championships, act, but they're going to want to compete for national championships. And the only way you compete for national championships is Particularly in this day and age of college football is you've got to sign, you know, top five, top ten recruiting classes. That's just how it's been the last, especially, you know, decade plus. The teams that have won have been the teams who have consistently recruited the best year in, year out. It's not a not a you can sign one top five class and be set. It's, you know, stacking those classes on top of each other. And speaking with speaking to what Mullen needs to do, I think one of the big things is you've got to just come out and kind of admit fault there, you know, admit that, you know, I made a mistake. I screwed up. I apologize. I hate that this happened this way. You know, obviously, um, we should have taken everything a lot more seriously than we did um, and we screwed up. And I mean, I think there's something to be said for people who are willing to come out and admit fault. And A lot of people aren't willing to do that. You know, a lot of people want to pass the buck, especially, you know, big time football coaches, because they don't, a lot of these, you know, programs and coaches are, you know, treat the game like it's sacrosanct and they don't want to, you know, admit that they could ever do anything wrong, you know, and Florida, this isn't the first time Florida as a program has been under this kind of scrutiny. If you look back at the end of the Urban Meyer era, one of the big reasons that, you know, aside from his health issues which, you know, whether or not they were 100% legit, you know, is up for plenty of debate and has been since then, right? But there was a lot of off-the-field issues at Florida that kind of tainted the Urban Meyer era there. A lot of people were just kind of – he was letting the players kind of run roughshod over the program, and, I mean, I don't know. I don't know if it's fair to say it's trending in this direction right now at Florida because everybody's got bad eggs. This kind of situation, this kind of kid – um in Jalen Jones I mean that kind of stuff can happen at any program but it really depends on how you deal with it uh going forward um and what Mullen does from here and I think that'll be interesting to follow definitely
0: well, I think you know just to speak to what you were saying about needing to stack those classes Florida is the type of school in the type of state where that is so very possible I mean, we've seen several dynasties build up within the Sunshine State because you have such a proliferation of talent just all congregated there within that one state. And everybody gets that opportunity to get more reps, to play more frequently, and to become really familiar with one another um you know you look at any of these dynasties that have developed in the state whether it's with the hurricanes or the Seminoles or the Gators themselves and it's it, it's been a homegrown thing and so right. it's really the balance of pulling the best talent there and um you know setting the boundaries that you need with your program um You know, we've seen it with other programs at other schools where it can kind of get a little rough shot as well. When you're pulling in the best talent, they're cocky. Like, that's the thing is you're pulling in great talent that's never really been told no in their life before. Um, You know, they've always been able to just do the right thing the right way that gets them all the accolades. That's the reason that you're pulling them in in the first place is because they can do that. And that means they've never really done much wrong and nobody's really held them to account before. And, and doing that is, um, you know, that's what we talk about when we talk about football as the possibility of building up individuals is really getting them to a point where, you, you know, you just have respect for yourself and doing things the way they are because you need to, You know, because you said you would do them that way because that's the way everybody is doing them and it doesn't work right if you kind of deviate from that plan. And that's, you know, and then also having the boundaries where when transgressions happen, yes, there is some element of a case-by-case basis, but when you're looking at a sexual assault, you know, accusation... Um, because yes, no charges were ever filed around this, or at least have not been yet, you still, like, even if that accusation is there, and somebody that's been assigned to close proximity with this person through no, like, individual request of their own, like, you're there for your first semester of school, and you're with this person who's really kind of throwing up red flags for you. If, if right. you. if you can come in in your first few weeks and see this, what the hell are the football coaches doing to not be able to see this as well? Like, yes, part of that is living in the same room and living in close proximity and living in that, you know, really confined intimate space where you, you know, you share a large portion of your day with an individual Um, and whoever they do and do not bring over there. So, you know, there is that element to it. But at the same time, if you can see that and get uncomfortable with it pretty rapidly and you're already, like, coming to the coaches then, it it really says something to just kind of brush that off and say, we're going to wait and see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I really can't say anything more to it than that. And yeah, I really agree with what you said in terms of owning it, like really taking responsibility for this and recognizing it as a teachable moment, especially for coaches, like for in for programs more broadly, like not just because you know like you've got to cover your ass but because it's the right thing to do because you're showing you know like football is all like i said is all about doing things as the play is designed and if you're going to put these plays in place and then you know kind of fritter them away and and make all these exceptions what's the point
1: right and you know the thing With Chris Steele, too, in this whole situation, imagine how traumatizing it is that that's your first real college experience. You know, he's a true freshman coming in and rolling early, going through spring practice, by all accounts, doing a really good job on the field. But his first real college experience is whatever the hell was going on in that dorm room and whatever was going around around that player. And whether or not the allegations or not were true, there was obviously something that he saw that made him uncomfortable enough to bring that to the coaches and request to be moved to a different dorm, something serious enough, obviously, that he would make such a request. And that's not a request that would come easy for anybody to have to do, right? To have to go to the coaches and ask to be moved. That's something that's probably going to get back to your roommate at some point and stuff. So it was a difficult decision for him to make to to bring that to the staff. And, you know, it's kind of – it's kind of baffling that they really just didn't do much with it that I don't know if, you know, and I don't know the full story, of what happened in the background there, if they decided to kind of investigate it themselves first, but you know, by all accounts, it wasn't handled the way that he thought it should be handled. And I mean, the kids absolutely traumatized and rightfully so. I mean, that's a really, you know, difficult situation for anybody to have to be in, especially when you're, you know, 18, 19 years old, uh, going through your very first kind of, um, big time structured program like that you know you're going through practices and spring and stuff practicing every day getting acclimated to college life which is just an entire entirely different ball game than being in high school uh so trying to do all that you know you can't blame him for for doing what he did and I'm sure there's going to be plenty of schools uh particularly I'm imagining he's going to want to go somewhere that's a little bit closer to home because he came from you know California and you can't blame him for wanting to maybe stick close to home so this could be a a big eventual win for Clay Helton at USC because this kid was an, originally a commitment to USC before decommitting. And apparently him and his family have had a really good relationship with Dan Mullen. That's obviously strained at this point. So maybe he can go back home and that'd be a huge pickup for USC. Maybe Mariel Cristobal at Oregon gets back involved in his recruitment because they were a big player to start with too. Uh, so somebody out West is going to get a, a hell of a football player uh, for their 2019 class a lot later than they would have anticipated getting someone. So a big win coming for someone like that. Hopefully, he'll be able to get acclimated quickly and make an impact right away next season. It's hard not to root for him.
0: Yeah, definitely. It's one of those things where, yeah, you you're obviously want to root for this player. It, it's really one of those things where it's kind of sad to realize that the youngest person involved in this all the greenest person here was the most adult in the room like that's really what sticks with me out of this is Chris Steele did everything he was supposed to do here um you know like I can't say exactly what he said to them perhaps if he'd made things more explicit it would have meant something I don't know because I wasn't the fly on the wall But by all accounts, he definitely reported something and made a request to to get out of that situation that obviously was off in some way. And that's all. like no judgment, because I don't know enough beyond that, but it was off in some way, obviously, for him. And if it's off for a person coming in that quickly and being that bold to to ask to be moved, to be, you know, to do something that's obviously going to have some polarizing effects in the locker room in terms of, you know, that can get very clickish very quickly. Like, which guy are you going to defend in this? Like, in terms of the roommate who got ditched or the guy who's making the request because something ain't right
1: there's an air to like snitching there too right exactly i mean that that's definitely something a kid like that's going to have in his mind because you see that in locker rooms all the time you hear about it you know you don't and even in any in professional circles and everything too you know you don't want to snitch on someone tell on someone for something they did wrong and if you get that reputation as someone who your teammates can't trust that can be difficult to come back from uh for a for a guy like that so i mean in in that case as well, you got to think about how much courage it took for him to speak up to begin with.
0: Exactly. And I think yeah, I think that really kind of puts it into the the kind of perspective I was trying to go with there. Yeah, you do have that real risk of being labeled of being the rat, of being the narc, of being the right. you know, um person who's just going to throw a teammate under the bus. In this case, Whatever transpires here, it's obviously a teammate who himself is uh, not as committed to the program as, I mean, because he's obviously leaving as well. You know, Jones is gone as well. So it's a messy situation all around. But like you said, I think it comes down to, one, owning it really just, we, we messed up here we sincerely messed up we wronged you know one individual who you know is completely in the right to seek out other opportunities because we did not do our due diligence as the adults in the room here and this is something that we intend to learn from and hope that other schools do as well moving forward and taking reporting like this seriously And, you know, we will not tolerate any stigma around this. You you own it that way, and then you go in the locker room and you really just live it every day that your players can come and tell you anything and you're going to take it seriously. Right. That's what they have to do next. And yeah, from there, I hope everyone else learns from that as well.
1: I think that's big too, like you said, kind of making it known to the players that you know, we screwed up and we're going to do whatever we can going forward to make sure that doesn't happen again. Complete open-door policy, complete we're going to listen to what you have to say and really take everything you have to say seriously. And, you know, college football is kind of, especially, you know, program to program, it's kind of like the ultimate glass house. And you really shouldn't throw stones in a glass house, as the old saying goes. And, man, Dan Mullen threw a lot of stones this offseason, particularly you know, towards Athens, Georgia, taking a lot of, you know, thinly veiled shots at the program with Georgia with what had happened, particularly with the Justin Fields situation about how, you know, he felt like they had maybe lied to Fields, Um, and a lot of people have said that, and I think there's some merit to that, but man, he took a lot of shots at Georgia throughout the offseason, and now he's had a worse week, I would say, than Georgia's had this offseason for sure, so Maybe, you know, maybe keep your mouth shut in those kind of instances that typically backfires when coaches come out and make those kind of statements. Because you never know, you're coaching a a complete, you know, 85 man roster or whatever of kids, you know, between yeah. typically between 18 and 22 years old. And those kids are going to make repeated stupid decisions over and over again. You never know what's going to come out, you know, who might get arrested or someone's going to leave your program. You're not going to make every single player on your roster happy. That's impossible. There's going to be kids who are unhappy who leave because they're unhappy. So I I don't know if he takes anything from that in terms of maybe he should just kind of keep quiet because he kind of had all the momentum on his side. You know, they lost to Georgia last year, but Florida was a hell of a lot better last year than anyone projected them to be. I don't think many people thought that they were a New Year Six contender last no. year, I certainly didn't. Coming into the season, I thought they'd be improved just because the coaching would be better, but I wouldn't have imagined them making a serious run at the at the New Year Six and be, New Year Six and being SEC East contender. So he kind of had all the momentum on his side, and you know a lot of stuff's gone wrong since then. You never really want to be have this kind of publicity around your program, particularly when you had so much forward momentum after your first year. Definitely
0: not. Yeah, definitely messy for Mullen moving forward and something to keep an eye on if the team, you know, if they don't rebuild that relationship with the team and things do, you know, sort of devolve out of that. He could be on the hot seat going into 2020 if that's the case. But, you know, I'd like to stop there, I think, unless you have anything else to say about this, because, um, you know, thinking about that, that future possibility of the hot seat really leads us into what we're going to be talking about next after the break, which is uh, coaches that are looking to us like they're the most likely ones to be fired next year. So from looking at moment on the 2020 hot seat, we'll be looking at the 2019 one right after this break. Stay tuned, everyone.
1: Welcome back, everybody. Uh, We're going to move on now to, uh, Looking forward again to the the 2019 college football season. We've uh, done a few things uh, concerning kind of previewing the season. We'll have a lot more on that going forward. One of the topics Zach and I discussed recently um, off the air about maybe discussion here was kind of looking at the coaching hot seat. That's always a fun topic um, in the off season throughout the season. And then, you know, obviously when the coaching carousel gets fired up um, and it could get fired up pretty quickly this season we see mid-season firings all the time and some of these coaches we're going to talk about could after poor starts be removed from their position uh, during the season so we're going to discuss a few of those coaches now Zach uh, who's the first one that really came to your mind we're probably going to be in agreement because the first one was kind of I guess a surprise wasn't fired last year everybody kind of thought that was going to happen at least for me I don't know if the first one for you is the same as me but Anyway. I
0: yeah, I'm guessing so. It's somebody we actually mentioned in the last segment quickly, Clay Helton at USC. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm guessing that's who you were thinking of as well. There. Oh yeah. Um, you know, top of pretty much everybody's list in terms of looking at the hot seat. It really was a surprise that he was retained into this season. You know, he got that that quote unquote dreaded vote of confidence. And, um, you know, it really does put him on a short leash this year. It's really incumbent on the team taking that next leap, not just getting the bowl eligibility, you know, not just being five and seven. you know, five and seven obviously kills him this year. He doesn't get to oh, yeah. midseason if they're anywhere near the path for that. But you know, if the season ends like seven and five, even eight and five after a bowl game, I don't think they're keeping him. That's not USC expectation, especially in a Pac-12 South. That, frankly, when these when the Pac-10 expanded to the Pac-12, everyone expected that to just be USC's division for years and years to come. And rightly so, like they were, you know, even coming out of the Pete Carroll era, you know, with him going to the Seahawks. USC was still set up for success for years to come, and there were certainly some interesting coaching decisions along the way, you know, with uh, a couple of names trying to keep the, the Pete Carroll coaching tree alive that I think they stretched for along the way, obviously, you know, looking at both Lane Kiffin at that point in his career, especially, and Steve Sarkeesian as well. Um, Both of them just weren't the right fit. And Helton has done a decent job. Like, and it's interesting because he's like the first one after that coaching tree. Like, he's really had to make his own waves and still be in that shadow, but not be of that shadow. And I think that distinction there... It, it, in a way, protected him into this year because it's not just another guy trying to reach for that that you're failing with. He really is somebody that does offer that opportunity for fresh continuity, you know, which isn't kind of an odd phrase to think of. But it doesn't fall within that same reaching along the different, you know, kind of rather weak branches in terms of the the college football head coaching ranks of people who worked under Carroll. Just doesn't have a lot of people, you know, a lot of people who have been really successful at that level. So Helton is very much a risk like he needs to have them in the Pac-12 championship game this year I think to save his job and I think that's the barest minimum for him
1: and that's not like that difficult of a of a bar for him to reach this year like you said the Pac-12 South's pretty wide open I think most people would probably the consensus right now would be what Utah's the favorite in the Pac-12 South this year, and probably rightfully so. I think I've seen them in most, uh, including your uh, early preseason top 25, uh, the only team from the Pac-12 South there. We talked about Arizona before being a potential dark horse if Khalil Tate can get healthy and him and Sumlin can kind of get on the same page. But there's no reason USC shouldn't win that division Um, and win it. You know, maybe not every year, maybe it's kind of crazy to say, but, you know, three out of five years or something like that, based on the level of competition, they should be perennially competing for Pac-12 championships. That's the level of a job USC is. That's the level Pete Carroll brought them to before he left. Um, and, you know, and it recently, before last year, they kind of bottomed out. But, you know, two years before that, Clay Helton had a lot of success. Yeah. You know, they won. 10 games in 2016, I believe, won the Rose Bowl that year and then won the Pac-12 uh, the next year and played in another New Year's Six Bowl game. They lost to Ohio State. But still, you know, that's back-to-back double-digit win years, back-to-back New Year's Six first. Then you completely bottom out when you lose Sam Darnold. You kind of hand the reins to a true freshman quarterback and JT Daniels. And obviously there's going to be growing pains. If I don't believe he would end up on the hot seat last year if USC's a uh, – you know, seven and five, eight and four regular season team last year with a freshman quarterback. It's like, hey, you know, we kind of get that regression, but to regress all the way to five and seven, um, losing the way they lost some of the games that they did lose, um, it's kind of difficult to deal with. And I wonder, too, Zach, how many, and it'd be maybe an interesting case study at some point for one or both of us, how many coaches who were originally interim head coaches found massive success? once they got their interim tag removed. Um, I can think of one off the bat. That's Dabo Sweeney, obviously, from Clemson, was their interim coach. But I think potentially guys like Lynn Swan at USC and other athletic directors around the country are hoping that these kind of Clay Helton types can be their version of Dabo, right? You know, Ole Miss took the interim tag off Matt Luke. I don't think that's going to last all that much longer uh, there. You know, you got Clay Helton at USC, and you, you see it you know, quite frequently, Ed Orgeron at, at LSU yeah, even as well. One. So, and you know, he's doing well, it seems, so far, too, but it wouldn't take um, much in the way of regression in Baton Rouge for him to find himself right back on the hot seat. So, you know, I wonder, that's something maybe interesting that we can discuss further later on, So, I don't have any figures or anything like that, but not all these interim coaches are going to be Dabo Sweeney 2.0 when you promote them. It was a big shock that, Len Swan gave Helton that vote of confidence at the end of last season when he seemed to be without a doubt a goner and you know maybe it's refreshing in a way that he didn't have the quick trigger pull that most of these athletic departments have because like I said you know Kelly Helton won 21 games the two years previously so that earns you at least a little bit of, of leeway I think because you're coming off a you know a Pac-12 championship and all that so you know I, I I don't know what the number is for next year, but I, I don't think seven and five. I don't think if he goes seven and five, he even gets to coach the bowl game. I don't think that's good enough. Yeah. Um, I think you're probably looking at maybe nine and three, maybe a nine-win regular season, Zach, that maybe gets him an extra year. But anything short of that, and I think they're probably going to be ready to make a change.
0: Yeah, definitely. One I think the last thing about Helton there that's interesting is you mentioned Orgeron at LSU as well. Like, he was also the interim coach at USC there, and looking at the way, like, he really wanted that job and the way okay. he was kind of left in the lurch for it is sort of an interesting case study in the way USC was very adamant about not just settling for that route there before and versus the way they have been very loyal to Helton and sticking with that decision, almost like... We finally made the decision to go this route. Now we're not going to allow this to to not end well. It's almost like they're stretching and, and sort of pulling for it, and, you know, to end with the fairy tale ending for them, rather than taking a sober assessment of is Helton really the guy who can get them there?
1: And this is the kind of decision, too, Zach, that could end up costing. Lynn Swan, his job down the line. This is the kind of, I'm putting all my chips in the table. I'm backing this particular horse. And if that horse comes up GIMP or can't, you know, win the race or whatever analogy you want to make there, and Lynn Swan could be out the door with Helton, and there could be a complete regime change in LA. Oh yeah, definitely.
0: What, and the thing is, is, you know, USC needs to get it right now. I think because you do have Chip Kelly there at, you know UCLA, who have, who is a big enough name that he has the potential to start peeling off some of these recruits. If you don't get your house in order, if you don't actually start acting like a USC should act in terms of being that really, you know, polarizing hegemonic power on the West Coast. That's that's their function in college football, and has been. Both, you know, earlier in the 21st century, but also historically, like they were really that West Coast, you know, private school fulcrum here that that tipped it that direction on, you know, the occasions when they were able to make a run. You know, you look back at John McKay and John Robinson, especially those those eras and. It, it, yeah, that's definitely something that's not acceptable. Like you need to be in the running for national championships at some point and some point soon because the guys who actually do last as, you know, USC icons get them there. It's just the fact of that program.
1: And the Pac-12 needs USC to be good again. They okay. really do when you when you look at it. The, it's good for conferences to have their, you know, blue blood programs kind of leading the way. And, you know, there's some, some good stuff going on out West. You know, I think Oregon's going to be uh, a powerhouse again, very soon. If everything keeps going the way it is on the recruiting trail and crystal ball can translate that to wins on the football field. Obviously Chris Peterson is kind of the model of consistency in Seattle. Um, Stanford every year pretty much. But, you know, if USC can get get back to being USC, if Chip Kelly can build UCLA up, then the Pac-12's entire profile gets boosted. Maybe they're not consistently being overlooked when it comes, you know, playoff time and stuff like that. Because the overall profile of the conference is boosted, you're not having situations where, you know, you have a potential for, a team that's maybe not all that deserving of playing in a conference title game, getting there just because the division's so weak, you know, and the Pac-12 South the last few years has kind of been down, right. Other than, you know, USC when they were kind of jumping back up, but, you know, I think it'd be important for the Pac-12. I think we've probably hit on Clay Helton enough, Zach. So I think, I think we can probably move on. Who's, who else you got?
0: You know, um, you mentioned USC needing to be good for the Pac-12 sake. And I think another team that really needs to be good for its conference's sake is Florida State. And so, you know, we, we heard rumblings about Willie Taggart's job being at risk in year one there in Tallahassee. It's always going to be a scorching seed under the person who's sitting there in, you know, Bobby Bowden's shadow. It's just the way it is. It's just like, you know, the person sitting there in State College has to deal with Joe Paterno's legacy, the person in Tuscaloosa, you know, even Nick Saban has to deal with being the heir to bear. It's it's just one of those things that's a fact of life. And for somebody like Willie Taggart, who left a, a promising situation in Eugene to take what was his dream job, it's somewhat disheartening just as somebody who's followed his career and, you know, rooted for him to get his opportunity um to see it at risk so soon. And at a point where he can't even, you know, like he doesn't necessarily have the personnel to be doing what he wants to do. You know, we've talked about it in the past, but Fisher did not leave him and a tremendous amount of depth or talent Um, In terms of, you know, recruiting rankings and everything that went on there, Um, it it just was what it was. And you have to give a guy a couple of years to make that happen. And I think um, you just have a really fanatical fan base that's going to be making noise. And as much as I hate to say it, I think he really is somebody who could be at risk.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're looking at—it's funny how quickly people forget that Jimbo Fisher's last season in Florida State, the Noles went like 7-6, and Mm -hmm. barely scratched out a bowl game because they rescheduled a canceled game after their annual game with Florida, uh, just to scratch out that sixth win. So, but you know, Florida State's won 12 games now in two seasons, and that's clearly not acceptable. But like you said, the cupboard wasn't left stocked for Taggart when he got to Tallahassee, as much as people want to think it was, just because— You know, Jimbo Fisher is a big-name coach, won a national championship there um, in 2013. But, you know, especially on the lines. I mean, that offensive line last year was just awful. And there's only so much you can do offensively when your line can't block anybody. You know, when you've got DeAndre Francois consistently running for his life. I mean, they have... One of the best young running backs in the country and Cam Akers, who was a five-star recruit, had a really promising freshman season and couldn't get anything going as a sophomore just because he was getting hit every single time he touched the ball in the backfield. So there's only so much you can do when your line's that bad. Um, Mm -hmm. There were some other issues. You know, a lot of people were upset with some play-calling decisions, but that's always more heightened when you're losing games you know, some of those kind of baffling decisions get forgotten about if we're able to eke out some close wins. And they had a couple close games that could have gone either way. They blew a 20-point lead against Miami that really could have at least extended the bowl streak and that probably doesn't bring down the rain as hard on Taggart as it did. But I agree. I think he's I think he is on the hot seat going into year two. Like you said, there were some rumblings about removing him after one season, which is just absurd. And two years isn't enough to build a program either. I don't think it would be fair if he was fired after year two. But I do think he's going to have to show some tangible signs of progress. I don't know how many wins it's going to take. But I don't think, you know, obviously if they miss a bowl again, I I guarantee they're going to make a change. Um, even if they just scratch it out and go like six and six or something like that, that's probably not good enough. He might realistically need seven or eight wins to keep going there. And I think you're right with the ACC comment as well about the ACC needing Florida State to be good. The ACC needs Florida State. The ACC needs Miami. The ACC needs Virginia Tech to be Virginia yeah. Tech again. I mean, because right now it's Clemson and Davo said it last year about it being Alabama and the rest of y'all. Uh, in terms of college football, playing out the whole Clemson underdog thing. But the ACC it's Clemson and very much so away from them, the rest of y'all, right? They're, exactly. they're driving the bus for the ACC. There's no real competition for them right now. And, you know, the ACC needs somebody like a Florida State to be Florida State again, needs Miami to jump up, Virginia Tech, whoever, anybody. I mean, it could be maybe Dino Babers hasn't going enough at Syracuse, That Syracuse is going to be that perennial threat. You know, they've played – Clemson tight last season. They beat Clemson the year before that. So, yeah. you know, maybe they're the team that's going to really challenge. I know they get forgotten about often uh, just because they're Syracuse, but he's done a great job there. I know it's getting off track, but, you know, I think that was a an astute observation about the ACC, just the same as the Pac-12 needing USC. The ACC desperately needs Florida State.
0: Well, and it's interesting, too, because you look at that Atlantic division just a couple of years ago when you had – both Clemson and Florida State doing well. And you had Louisville with Lamar Jackson there still. So you really did have three great teams there. And then at that point, the question really became what's going on in the coastal. Like there, you know, you just had imbalance there in that that regard as well. So yeah, like you said, it, you also need a Virginia Tech and a Miami really to be stepping up. You need a team like Pitt to be, a contender at something more than seven and seven. Um, you know, you just, you just need more depth in terms of your, your program talent level. Um, so, yeah, I think that's really a, a, a just a good point all around looking at some of these powerhouses and the reasons why they would look to pull the trigger on a coach and, and, and go in a different direction. Um, who else stands out for you, John?
1: Uh, you know, I think one of the bigger ones, too, that everyone will be talking about all, all off season long, all season long, at least until, you know, we really figure out which direction it's going to head is Gus Malzahn at yeah. Auburn. Um, he very, very by the seat of his pants narrowly held on to his position at the end of last season. Uh, Really, I mean, agreeing to a reduced buyout that makes it a lot easier for Auburn and a lot more financially feasible for Auburn to fire him after this season if things don't really take a step in the right direction. You know, Auburn came into last season thought to be, you know, one of the 10 best teams in college football, thought to be a real contender with Alabama and Georgia and the SEC. You know, everybody kind of picked at Alabama, Georgia, and probably Auburn at the top of the SEC last year. And then, you know, you know they went 7-5 in the regular season, got blown out by both Georgia and Alabama in November, lost a game to Tennessee that was kind of baffling uh, that no one really saw come at home, I believe that game was as well. So had some really tough losses. Offense took a big step back another Problem, like Florida State's, Auburn's offensive line really struggled. Jarrett Stidham didn't have a lot of time to throw. They couldn't run the ball very well. And, you know, it's always been Malzahn's calling card has been offense. He's kind of innovative in that regard. Um, but there's been some real chinks in the armor for his offense in recent seasons other than 2017 when everything kind of clicked. Um, a lot of that had to do, I think, too, with having On Johnson in the backfield. Losing yeah. him last year was a bigger loss than anyone really uh, realizes because they figure it's Auburn that offense can, you know, plug and play and go. And he was kind of a, a really special talent that, you know, didn't get overlooked necessarily. He was given his props, but I think everybody kind of overlooked what kind of impact it would have on Auburn last year to lose him. So I I did some early projections on Auburn recently for the, for the website. And I came away looking at, you know, probably eight and four might really be the high end ceiling for all. They have a really tough schedule next year, you know, not yeah. just, the SEC schedule they play, but, you know, they open with Oregon and Dallas on yeah, a definitely. neutral site game, and that's going to be a huge game. That's a, I mean, from the outset, looks like a, a 50-50 toss-up game that could go really either direction with those teams. Uh, and then, you know, Auburn's still got to play um, Georgia from the east. They draw Florida from the east this year on the road. They get Alabama, LSU, Texas, A&M. And they have some really, really tough games and a really odd schedule that I kind of stumbled upon while doing this, something that I hadn't really noticed, that, you know, Auburn doesn't play a home game the entire month of October. They're on the road the entire month of October. Their last road game is like October 19th or October 26th, and every, all of November is nothing but home games. So a really strange schedule that could be really difficult to navigate, typically when you're going on three or so road games in a row in October, trying to navigate through that, particularly when you've got a coach who's fighting for his job, yeah. even more so when you're going to be kind of entrusting your offense to either a true freshman or a red shirt freshman quarterback, that kind of battles uh, been kind of boiled down to either uh, Joey Gatewood, a red shirt freshman who's got the unfortunate task of being the next Cam Newton for Auburn. You know, there's always, that guy there's not another cam newton out no. there i don't know why um that is the comparison they like to bring out and then on auburn legacy Patrick Nix's son, Bo Nix, who was a five-star quarterback in last year's cycle. You know, so you're going to be entrusting your offense to a really inexperienced player um, and seeing kind of what that can do for you. And he's had a lot of success with first-year starters at quarterback, though. You know, with Stidham's first year, Auburn was really successful. Uh, Nick Marshall's first year as a starting quarterback, Auburn played for a national title, and then obviously won a national title with Malzahn as the offensive coordinator when Cam Newton was a first-year starter at Auburn. So, I, I think it's important for him. I don't know how many wins it'll take. I was kind of conflicted if – I don't know that eight and four would be good enough. And I think it should be good enough, Zach, because, I, I mean, he's he's won at a really high clip. People like to forget he's won 66% of his games at Auburn. That's impressive, uh, yeah. particularly in, in a division where you're constantly competing with, guys, with teams like Alabama and LSU and now even Texas A&M with Jimbo Fisher getting things going there and having to play Georgia every single season. You know, so they play a tough schedule every year and he's won a lot of games. He's won, you know, he's the only Auburn's the only other program since two thousand what, two thousand twelve now to win the SEC West other than Alabama. Alabama's exactly. won the West every other year, except twenty thirteen and except twenty seventeen that Auburn got it. Yeah. So that's something that's a really that's a feather in Malzon's cap that he's been able to capture two Western division titles and no one else has mm-hmm. uh since LSU took it in two thousand eleven. So I, you know, I'm kind of confused. I don't think he's deservingly on the hot seat. I think a lot of it has to do with Auburn getting tired of seeing all the success happening in Tuscaloosa. Uh, And it could be, you know, his job really could come down to that November home stretch where he's got the home games against Georgia. He's got the home games against Alabama. Maybe if he can pull a 2017 redux and pull off wins against both of them, maybe that is enough to maintain his job. But, you know, if not, losing to Alabama for what I believe that'd be the fourth time in five seasons might be too much to overcome.
0: Totally. Yeah, I definitely agree. Melzon is one that whether or not he should be, he's definitely going to be somebody on the hot seat. Um, A couple of names that really, you know, also looking a little bit lower into the group of five, I think we're going to see, you know, there, there we're usually going to see the the program willing to – go in part ways more quickly. Um, You know, if things are going wrong after what's already been a couple of bad seasons, they're not going to keep going with it. Um, Obviously, also at that level, buyouts are a bit tougher. So, you know, it's, it's a push and pull of that. But a couple of teams that really stood out to me are a couple of guys who are really on the hot seat. Brent Brennan at San Jose State. You know, he's going into his third season. Um, this is really the point where you should at least be seeing a little bit of progression. Um, but the thing is, is San Jose State, you don't think of them as being a contender most years. But, you know, like Mike McIntyre, for instance, was able to turn them into a 10-win team. It's something that is possible there, especially in the Mountain West and... The West division specifically in that conference, it, it's definitely a very manageable division. Like, they should be competitive with Fresno State every year for that, com- that division and playing for the conference title. Um, they're a big enough school. They're, a, you know, a, a solid enough recruiting um, possibility into the South Bay there that you should be getting enough kids to be able to at least manage a Mountain West schedule and get more than three wins in two years. So he's one that definitely stood out to me. Um, also staying in the Mountain West, Bob Davy at New Mexico. Like it's just getting to the point where we've seen, you know, we've heard several times them called upon as a possibility for, you know, swooping in and stealing the Mountain Division. And they, you know, they've sh- sh- they've had one three way share of the division title and didn't end up winning the tiebreaker to play for the conference championship. And other than that, they've really just, you know, he's going into his eighth season there and he wins at a three seven nine winning percentage. It's just, it's not enough. Like, I think in a place like New Mexico, when you're playing against teams like Wyoming and Air Force and Colorado State, you should be able to get wins in some of those. Like, New Mexico does have some draws, and they've been able to build up a decent enough program in the past that I think if you're not at least getting to a bowl game every other year, especially when a bowl game was designed at your home stadium specifically to make sure you would get into a bowl game if you got eligible, that that's a little bit ugly. And, and after eight seasons, if you can't start to really show things turning around in season number eight, you know, as big a name as it is to bring in Bob Davey at a place like Albuquerque, at some point you've, you've got to recognize diminishing returns for what they are.
1: No, and regardless of what school you're at, 33 and 54 is 33 and 54 after, you know, seven seasons or whatever it is there. And he had the two-year flare-up where they made back-to-back bowl games, and that's in between, you know, three and four win seasons that have been spread out throughout the rest of his tenure. So, yeah, I I agree there um, for sure that this is probably the type of year where, you know, if he could squeeze out six and six – Um, and get that bowl eligibility, that would definitely be good enough. But it's got to be some kind of progress like that. Or New Mexico, you know, probably does need to move on into a different direction. You know, he is the big name. We're also talking about a guy who's 64 years old, you know, turned 65 during the season. So how much does he really have left, particularly at a job that's as difficult as it is, you know, at New Mexico? Like you're not getting, you know, five-star recruits to come, to Albuquerque to play football. So it's a tough job and you know it's a job for potentially for a younger guy or you know that's going to have the energy to really put the investment in the program and it's it's fair to question whether Davey is that guy anymore.
0: Certainly. Yeah, that's, I think, why he really stood out for me. And, you know, I said earlier, you know, you do have some advantages at New Mexico, but that's not to say, like, you have massive advantages. You have advantages over a place like Laramie, Wyoming, or Logan, Utah. You know, you're a slightly bigger city than those places. You're still Albuquerque. Um, so, yeah, I think it's really key to, to point that out and you know like you said any program if you're you know a below 400 winning percentage for a consistent period of time you've really got to evaluate what you're trying to do as a program
1: yeah i got one other group of five coach for you zach i'm yeah. curious to get your opinion on what do you think about charlie strong in tampa
0: Ooh, that's a really good question like you know south florida is a team that should be in contention every year like we talked earlier in this this podcast about florida and the gators being the type of team that should be a perennial contender because you're in a state like florida with so many recruits and south florida is in that same boat like, especially relative to other group of five schools, you know, we see UCF really building up recruiting under their past few head coaches. And, you know, going back to George O'Leary, they started to really get that sweep up in, in recruiting rankings. And South Florida's had opportunities to to really get to that same level, but it just hasn't been consistent. And yeah, I think the thing is, is if you see UCF continue to be this juggernaut here and South Florida continuing to kind of stagnate or even, you know, backslide even a little bit this year, um, it could be a risk on his job. And I think part of that might be expectations that are a bit unrealistic, kind of like we're seeing with Taggart at Florida State, you know, just to keep it with another example here in in the Sunshine State. But I think Charlie Strong, for better or worse, yeah, he is the type of coach where if he's not turning it on in those first few years, it really becomes a question of is it ever going to happen? Because it seems like there's that one big burst, and he made it really work well for him at Louisville in terms of, of, you know, punching up. And the fact that he's sort of moved down to a group of five head coaching opportunity and especially followed in the wake of you know a, a run that was just as good as it was it really does make it that much harder for him to meet what might be unrealistic expectations you know they lost a lot of talent from those those high water mark teams and so it really becomes, you know, like when you don't have a Quentin Flowers anymore, you don't have, um, you know, like all of that talent that were on those teams, it, it, it is going to have a tangible impact no matter who the coach is. And it really sucks to be the one who comes in right when all those people are walking out the door with the coach that you're replacing, it, you know, like, it, it it's something that you have to recognize in that moment, and it, it, it's college football, and Charlie Strong is the type of coach where he's not going to get a long leash at this point in his career, especially when he's been ditched by other programs. Um,
1: so, yeah. yeah, I don't think that Charlie Strong's on the hot seat necessarily next season, but it is interesting, and you know, they won ten games in his first year there with, you know, the aforementioned Quentin Flowers, kind of building off of what Willie Taggart had already built um, at South Florida. Really had a team that was ready to win right away, and then they backslid last year after a really good start to the season. Really couldn't get anything going. weren't they Were they seven and zero at the one point of last season before losing out from the rest of the way? I, I believe. Think that's so great, yeah. So you know, seven and six, whatever I. Not an awful year by any means, particularly for a school like South Florida. But there is a lot of talent. At, I mean, a lot of potential at a school like that, especially in an area as big as Tampa. I mean, you're talking about a really big area of Florida. There's a lot of talent. If you're just strictly recruiting the area of Tampa, you should be able to field a pretty competitive football team. Exactly. Um, and especially in a conference like that, it's kind of right for the taking. And they should be, you know, kind of perennial american contender uh right there with central florida there's no reason they can't be just like that or near that same level uh the interesting thing for me with charlie strong last year was how bad south florida was defensively oh yeah they were awful on defense and that's always been strong's calling card you would think even with talent that might not be on the level that he's used to coaching, he could scheme his way to better defensive performances than they were giving last year, particularly in the second half of the season when they were just getting gouged by by simple runs, talking about little inside zones or inside traps or outside runs. I mean, just anything right off the gut. They were just getting gouged repeatedly, and it was really tough to see and really odd to see for a Charlie totally strong coach defense. So I think whether or not South Florida is able to, you know, get back into kind of competing um, with S- Central Florida and that war on I-4 be, you know, dependent on completely on what he's able to turn around with his defense next year. And I think this could be a really important year. He might not be on the hot seat going into this season, but another mediocre year, another 6-6, six and 7-6 six, and six season, whatever, could really put him on the hot seat heading into 2020, particularly yeah. with how much success their rival's having.
0: No, I think that's a reasonable way to look at it. Looking at, I think, progress this year, you know, like, if seven and six is your low watermark for that team, you're doing okay. Like if you're still bowling at a South Florida and that's your, you know, recovery year after losing a key class of guys who really made a huge difference for that program over the past couple years before that's, that's to be expected. Um, But you know, if they're, You know, I don't even know if you have to have the war on I-4 being a virtual play-in game for that the East this year, um, as it was a couple of years ago. Um, But at least being, like, a nine-win team this year is something that needs to happen. Like, you just have too much talent looking at recruiting rankings, looking at all of that, even relative to other, you know teams in the conference and in the Eastern division that you've got to make that happen. Um, you know, uh, there was one or two other names on my list, but I just want to give you another opportunity before I dive in. Do you have anybody else that's stuck for you?
1: Yeah, I. you know, there's obviously several coaches. Uh, Randy Edsall at Connecticut, I think, is a guy who could very well be on the hot seat. They were I mean, historically bad last season, particularly on defense. And this is obviously yeah. his second go around at UConn um, from, you know, having a really successful first tenure there before he left to take the Maryland gig, he had, you know, done really, really well at UConn. And then, you know, since he's been back, they've won four games in two years yeah. uh, there and, you know, fell from three and nine in year one to one and 11 in year two. So, I mean, he could be a guy, who, you know, maybe he's not up for the job the second time around, and he could be a guy who's really on the chopping block this year if they're not able to take a step forward. It's going to be tough for them to take a step forward next season with what they've got um, on the schedule in particular. Um, jumping back into the Power Five, there was a couple others. I think it could be a really big year for Justin Fuente oh, yeah. at uh, Virginia Tech, particularly with kind of a tumultuous offseason that they've had, losing a lot of key players to transfer, including – you know, quarterback, Josh Jackson. Um, But, you know, he's, his first two years went really well. Uh, You know, they won the coastal in year one and won 19 games in two years. That's, you know, a really good start, but kind of, again, living in a past era, living with recruits that he didn't bring in and, you know, they went six and seven last year, barely made a bowl game in their own right, had to scrape out a really close game against Virginia uh, in their annual rivalry game at the end to even get bowl eligibility and maintain their now nation's leading bowl straight yeah. now that Florida State's is over. But, you know, uh, Virginia Tech's a proud program with what Frank Beamer was able to do there. And winning, being 500 or under 500 or just at 500, ain't going to get it done there. No. Um, and he, he I, it wouldn't surprise me if Virginia Tech slipped again, had another 6-6 six and six type season if they looked to make a move. Yeah, um, that would be his fourth year there, and you know it's not typically a good sign. Typically, when you've been the coach somewhere and you're entering your third and fourth seasons, really when the program really becomes yours, yeah, you know every this is your recruits, and you really should be making sh- big strides forward if that's the direction the program's going to be going. And if you get into years three, four, five, whatever, and you're taking steps backward, that's never a good sign. No. I mean, I don't I think there's many coaches who have had big step backwards in their third fourth fifth year or whatever at their program that were able to kind of scratch out and get back forward so I think it's a big year for him I think it could be a big year for Matt Luke at Ole Miss we talked mm-hmm. about him in the first segment um, he kind of had um, a couple of mulligans his first two seasons at Ole Miss because of the bowl bans they were under so but you know the clock's now ticking for him because you know those bans are over instantly sanctions are kind of gone it's you know, now or never for him. He was the interim coach that kind of held everything together after the whole Hugh Freeze fiasco. Yeah, definitely. So, but Ole Miss was really, before all the Freeze stuff happened, was really trending in the right direction on the football field, whether or not that was legit or whether or not they were, you know, widespread NCAA issues. There obviously were was some of that going on there, but they really want to get back to being a contender again in the SEC and they haven't been that in the first two years there. Even if they were bowl eligible, they wouldn't have made it last year. They were 5-7. and seven. Um, And that was with a lot of talent. They lost more offensive talent than I think anybody in the country last season. When you talk about losing Jordan Tiamu at quarterback, losing mm-hmm. A.J. Brown and D.K. Metcalf at receiver, losing several pieces up front like Greg Little at left tackle, you know they have a lot to replace. So oh, going into course. next season – they need to make they need to be a bold team they probably need to win seven games and right now if you were making a if I was making a power rankings of SEC teams I believe I would start with number fourteen being Ole miss I think they're probably the worst team in the SEC on paper at least and that could change uh you know maybe Mike McIntyre can do wonders with that defense uh, that wasn't done the last couple of seasons maybe Rich Rodriguez as the offensive coordinator could get things figured out on on the offensive side with a younger offense this year. Uh, but it, I don't think it's trending in the right direction for Luke at, in Oxford. I think he's a guy who I could see them deciding, you know, we gave this a shot. Thank you for holding the program together through these sanctions. But, you know, we've got to get somebody in here who can kind of make us take the next step.
0: Totally. No, I think those are a couple of good choices. Um, the only other one I had on my list was Chris Ash at Rutgers. Um, yeah. You know, it's Rutgers, obviously. They're... Not the type of program, especially now that they're in the Big Ten, that they're going to be a powerhouse every year. You know, this isn't the Big Ten or the Big East days anymore. This is the Big Ten days. And Rutgers has a ceiling, but at least being bowl eligible, you know, I think is a critical thing for that program. You've got to do it once in a while, you know, um to 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 make it worth your while. I mean otherwise why are you beating yourself up over and over again with you know and expecting different results. And you know like you said I think going into that fourth season is a critical one and this is the fourth season for Ash at this point. Um and the fact that he's won 7 games in the first 3 seasons, he's sub 200 winning percentage. You know, he's at 194 winning percentage right now. Something has to happen. You've got to at least get to a bowl game this year. Or, you know, there's no reason to keep him around, I don't think. Like, I hate to be crass about it, but when you're making as much money as they are, you know, even somebody like Chris Ash is, you know, a millionaire from this game you've got to produce some kind of result and at least get your fan base fired up for a bowl appearance. So,
1: Yeah, it's it's unfortunate because it looked like he might have had the ball rolling because they won two games his first year, doubled that in year two and won four games, which, hey, you know what, Rutgers, that's a big step in the right direction. exactly. Let's do that again next year, win six games, go to a bowl game, and they bottom out and win one game last year. Of course. So, again – not typically a good sign when you're in year three, year four, whatever, and you're moving in that direction. And, you know, they were another team that started a true freshman quarterback last year who had some really, really unfortunate growing pains. If you looked at his stats, I believe he threw something like four touchdowns and like 20 interceptions or something, Arthur Sikowski did. So yeah. I, I, there must not have been anybody else on the roster to take snaps because you'd feel like with snap, with stats like that, you would maybe try somebody else. Uh, But they got an interesting transfer, actually, last week. Um, McLean Carter from Texas Tech
0: transferred
1: to Rutgers... um to, to join that program. So maybe having a, a veteran quarterback in the room, maybe he can be the guy that can make them take a step. I don't know if bowl eligibility is a must for him to keep his job, but we've seen that Rutgers can be a quality program. I mean, Greg Ciano got Rutgers uh, to being a perennial bowl team, even had them ranked. We talked about the crazy 2007 year where Rutgers was ranked in the top, what, two? Yeah. I think they were ranked second at one point. Um, during the season. So, I mean, obviously that program has a higher ceiling than we've seen recently under Chris Ash and before him, Kyle Flood. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's a big year for him. I think he's definitely one who could end up being gone at the end of the season.
0: Yeah, certainly. Um, yeah, so I think it's a good point you make. I don't think they necessarily have to be bowl eligible, but if they're not, like, I think if it's like another four-win season, I think at least two or three of those losses have to be coming by a single score. Like, you have to see at least that where you were in the game and could have been bowl eligible if, you know, things had turned differently on a couple of plays here and there.
1: Yeah, maybe you're competitive with like a Penn State or a Michigan or something like that, and you lose, but it's close. I mean, they play in a tough division, right? You're going against Ohio State, Penn State, Michigan, Michigan State. I mean, it's four games on the schedule that are going to be tough for you to win every single year, and that's not counting your cross-division opponents from the other side of the conference. So yeah. it is tough, and you know, maybe, maybe they do win four games, and maybe one of those wins even is against a team like Michigan or Penn State. Maybe they pull a massive upset like that. We've seen that kind of signature victory be enough to really reinvigor some confidence in a coach before, and maybe that's what happens for, for Chris Ash. It would be nice. They obviously need to do something, and another one or two win seasons, definitely not going to get it done.
0: Certainly. I think we're going to take a break here quickly, everybody, and then dive back in and look at some memorable fan traditions. So uh, stay tuned. We'll see you on the other side. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz podcast, everybody, for our final segment here this week. Uh, We're going to be talking now a bit about some memorable fan traditions that we really love in college football. You know, things that happen both, you know, inside the stadium, outside the stadium, before, during, and after the game that really just show why college football is such an awesome sport in terms of you know, just being really captivating and showing that that participatory zeal. So, you know, I, I pitched this idea to you, John. Were there any that just immediately popped to mind when I mentioned this idea to you?
1: You know, I think the first one that popped in my mind, it's not necessarily even my favorite, but the first one that really stuck out to me um, was Virginia Tech playing Inter Sandman, when they enter the stadium, especially at night games in Blacksburg, when they're – especially when Virginia Tech's good. That's one of the most, like, chill, bumpy things I've ever seen. I've never seen it in person. I I would go crazy to see that in person. But watching it on TV, you know, when they're playing a a big-name opponent and they come out to enter Sandman and the crowd's just roaring, going crazy. I mean, that's one of the more electric environments in college football right there. So that was the first one that really hit me. Uh, just off the top of kind of top of my head when you had mentioned it to me earlier about maybe discussing this on the podcast, what were uh, did you have one in particular that really made you think of this? You know, I,
0: you had a, you had a great choice there. It was one I had jotted down on sort of a short list of different things I was looking at. Um, But the one that really struck me was one that we've only really recently seen in the past couple, couple of years. Um, it's the Iowa wave, you know, they're at Kinnick Stadium where they'll turn around and they'll wave at the Children's Hospital there. And it's really just become, you know, in short order, a really touching tradition, sort of showing, um, you know, how an entire fan base there congregated in the stadium can become, you know, an even more powerful force and really become something bigger than football and really integrated into the broader community in a way that makes a really awesome difference for those kids as well. Like it's something they're really anticipating. And you hear, you know, you hear the think pieces in the Iowa newspapers and everything in the lead up to the past couple of seasons where it's like the kids are getting ready for football season again. Um, You know, that means a lot. And I think that's the one that really prompted me to throw this idea your way.
1: Yeah, that, that's a great choice. That's probably the best current tradition in college football just for the impact and what it means. And that's another one of those things where that's college football at its absolute best right there. I mean, that's, you know, fans, players, all that kind of coming together to give those moments to the kids who really need moments like that uh, with everything they've got going on. And that's kind of just a beautiful tradition. I know. Um, Seeing that the last couple of years has really been really been touching, and it's something that's really been enjoyable to watch. Um, it's kind of funny because Iowa had early on uh, when I was thinking about it, there was another Iowa tradition too that kind of stuck out. How they and completely on the other end of the spectrum, some I guess some gamesmanship for Iowa. They always would they paint their visitors' locker room pink, um, and they've done that since what the Hayden Fry era at yeah. kinnick stadium painting the locker the visiting locker room pink as kind of a psychological <laughs> warfare on their opponent and i don't know if that necessarily fits what you were going for in tradition but that's one that popped in my mind as well as the the wave to the children's hospital But i thought <clears> it was <throat> kind of funny that iowa had a couple now that really stood out to me definitely yeah i think the
0: uh <coughs> the locker room one is uh Definitely more obviously program based than fan based, but I think they they kind of correspond as a, an interesting juxtaposition between the two. You know, gamesmanship versus just unabashed compassion. It, it, it it's interesting how football brings out both of those dynamics in all of us. Um, But yeah, you know, like we talk about that being a newer tradition. Another one that really stuck out for me is actually a defunct tradition. And, you know, I remember when it died and it's the Texas A&M bonfire that they would always put together before the the game against Texas, before they take on the Longhorns and the Lone Star Showdown. And I remember that 99 collapse very well. Um because it was the first time I, you know, I never really was an athlete. I was a debater. And so I did extemporaneous speaking where you have like a half hour to write a seven minute speech and get it memorized with supporting evidence and go out there. And this was the first time I'd ever seen a sports topic come up. You know, as somebody who loves sports, it was the first time where it really became possible to see sports in the intersection of broader current events or it's the first time it really landed for me that way and just how sports have a broader significance and have such a huge meaning in the communities where they matter and that bonfire really mattered to that community for decade after decade and was really a serious endeavor by the end there and, you know, there had been complaints about safety long before that collapse happened and the, the 12 people died. Um, and I think it was like t- a couple dozen, maybe 30 people that got injured. But it, you know, just as a tradition, as something that brought together the the entire campus community in a way. And, you know, brought together everybody who really loved Texas A&M football. It really showed what a fan tradition can do in terms of creating something massive and collective like that.
1: Yeah, you know, Texas A&M still got, you know, the 12th man, which They've is got the, tons the, of towel, the towel waving and stuff. Um, that gets everybody kind of fired up. It's made that one of the more difficult environments to play in in college football. I and mean, we saw the when Clemson went there last year, that was a really difficult place for Clemson to escape with a victory, and they narrowly did that. So, yeah, I, that's definitely one that's missed uh, now as well. Um, Not that they would even up, do it anyway
0: because, you know, they don't even play Texas anymore. but.
1: Right. Right. And that, you know, it's unfortunate that that game is defunct now because that was one of the better rivalry games in college football. And hopefully we'll see it. I, I think the next time we see it will probably be in a bowl game somewhere, whether oh, yeah. it's a New Year's Six offering or something like that, because I don't think we're anywhere close to them reconciling uh, their differences to actually play uh, a regular season matchup, although they really should. Uh, be playing every year because um, that's the rivalries are what make college football great we talk about what brings fans in a lot of times is the kind of rivalry aspect of football we all have our favorite teams we all have our least favorite teams And our least favorite teams almost always coincide with the teams that our teams have to play every year right exactly
0: so. what else stands out for you um in in terms of this question here and and you know fan traditions
1: Obviously, um, one of the ones that stood out to me early on, too, was just from my perspective of being a lifelong Alabama fan is the singing of Rammer Jammer in Mm -hmm. the fourth quarter of games that are well decided that Alabama's won. The fans kind of chanting to, you know, rub some salt in the wound of having defeated your opponent. That's kind of always been a fun thing, particularly when you're in the stadium and it's a rivalry game, like if Auburn is there or wherever, getting to hear that kind of ring out. It's always fun, too, when you actually hear it on the broadcast of the games and stuff, particularly from a fan's perspective. I'm sure it pisses off opponents and stuff, but, you know, if you didn't want them singing Rammer Jammer in the stands, maybe score a few more points, you know? (laughs) Exactly.
0: No, it's it's always fun when you get to hear those sorts of things for your team, and uh, it, it definitely does sting if you're the opponent who has to listen to it. Um, so, yeah, I think things like that in general are, you know, they're they're fun, that, you know, like part of college football is the competitive aspect of it, and embracing that is a fun thing. I, I think we should never discount that. Um, because it is a game, and you should be having fun with it on that level. Um, so, yeah, a couple of other things that stood out for me just as I was thinking about this, like you mentioned that, like, you know, like the fourth quarter sort of rolling up. But I also even think, you know, and maybe this is just an Oregon fan and a Wisconsin fan in me, but just thinking about like that between the third and fourth quarter, like in the stands, like you think about Camp Randall, you've got jump around. You think about Oregon, they're always playing Shout and playing the scene from Animal House on the screen there. And the whole stands are just, you know, a little bit softer now and getting lower and lower and lower in the stands. And you just see it all around the bowl. And those little moments, I think, are also a really fun thing. And you see, you know, like I said, the different flavor of it at every different stadium has those little bits of, you know, like participatory experience that just happened week after week that you just kind of get locked into. And like, it's that time of game where we do this. Um, I think is a really fun thing to just own collectively and just be on a schedule as fans as well. Just like you see with the players down on the field, like really owning your moment to shine there.
1: And, you know, that encourages fans to stay the entire game too, even for the lesser opponents you know, whether, you know, Wisconsin, Oregon, whatever, whatever university you're talking about, you had little moments like that that, you know, strategically take place going into the fourth quarter, not just to, you know, get the stands fired up for close games, but also to kind of encourage fans to stick around when, you know, Wisconsin could be bludgeoning an opponent. You know, everybody wants to stick around because jump around is a nationally known thing. And that's one of the cooler things that goes on in, in the stands in any college football stadium. Yeah. So especially for those fans who don't get to go to, you know, six games a year or whatever, the fans who are going, you know, once every few years getting to participate in that. It's kind of one of those, could be even one of those uh, formative moments for some college football fans. Undoubtedly.
0: Um, yeah, anything else that jumping out at you?
1: There were some negative ones that jumped mm-hmm. out at me, but I don't know if you want to save that for another podcast
0: that might uh, be or a, not. That might be a good idea. Um, just staying on the west coast for me a bit. Um, I, one that really cracked me up always is uh, Tightwad Hill at Cal. You know, the the hill just outside the stadium where fans all congregate there, and it's like got signage and everything at this point of like being able to go stiff the the turnstile and watch the game from the hill that was made out of you know constructing this stadium. You know, just that little quirk of construction that allows fans to go get a free peek at the game. Um, I I I really love those sorts of things that happen along like that. Um, Another one I was thinking of was Washington State and the tradition of fans taking the flag to college game day wherever it has been for pretty much the entirety of that program's existence. And then when they finally got the opportunity to host game day, just how much more did that mean? Because, you know, you had people keeping that tradition alive for as long as they did.
1: That was one of the cooler game day environments last year was when game day went to Pullman. Yeah. Um, And it was crazy how many people turned out. You kind of just knew that something special was in the air. Uh, for that game for Washington State. But, yeah, I didn't even think about that when I was thinking about in-stadium traditions. But, God, that's a great one. That's absolutely a great pull.
0: Yeah. Um, it, it's one that just kind of crossed my mind, and I'm like, oh, man, that's too funny. I, I got to yeah. mention
1: that. Um, I real Circling back to something we talked about a minute ago uh, with the, the, the song choices and stuff like that, one that just popped in my head when we were talking about this is West Virginia – You know, they Mm. play the the Country Road song, the John Denver song, in the stadium and get all the fans to sing that uh, and how cool that is. Not only because that's a great classic song, but also just the entirety of their stadium kind of singing along to what's really become West Virginia's state anthem at this point. Pretty much, believe. I believe they teach that in elementary (laughs) school. Everyone's got to learn it. (laughs) I wouldn't doubt it
0: one bit. Um, Yeah, I think that's a great one as well. Um, And even like cowbells, Mississippi State and the cowbells, like, I know you don't love it. I know you don't love it at all. But, um, you know, it is something that, you know, here on the West Coast, it's something that is actually distinctive about a program like Mississippi State.
1: Artificial noisemakers are not allowed in college football stadiums. I just want to want to put that out there. Huh? Okay. Yeah. It's a it's illegal. It's also annoying, man. God Almighty, I can't imagine. I've, I've had opportunities in the past to travel to Starkville for an Alabama-Mississippi State game, and I've turned it down specifically because I think I might strangle someone in the stands if they were ringing a cowbell in my ear for 60 straight minutes of football time. So really you're talking, you know, two and a half, three hours worth. I don't think I can stand it. I really don't. So let me
0: tell you why that cowbell tradition really cracks me up. When I worked in the University of Oregon archives, I was going through – random boxes of stuff and we were trying to aggregate our catalog of everything that we had around sports stuff from over the years at university of oregon and one thing that turned up was like a cowbell that had been given out to fans and it was like a commemorative cowbell from 1938 i want to say and mm-hmm. um you know it I can't remember if it had engraving on it or if it was just the sticker that came with it, but like mention the game, mention it being held, um, you know, just like really sort of laid this as a moment in time. And I think that's really what, you know, I, I linked that in my head and they've always cracked me up that way. So whether or not I'd enjoy sitting in the stands with it for as long as it, as it would happen. That's another question, obviously. Um, you know, maybe being behind the glass of the press box is the right way to go in that instance. Um, as long as somebody doesn't go and get, you know, cheeky and open up their window is so (laughs) that you, you have to hear it anyway. But, uh, I I think it's something that again, like any of these things that bring fans together and develop organically, especially outside of the university proper, handing it over and sort of trying to manufacture tradition. I like I, I like things like that.
1: I get you know it is unique for sure, and it sets Mississippi State kind of apart and aids in there being you know a, a tougher environment to play. I just always had that stigma against it. Specifically also, to be fair, it's fair for me to mention that the rival high school that I I went to a high school and the rival high school would play in football every year. Their fans rang cowbells and there was only like 50 of them and it was the most annoying thing I ever heard. So I can't imagine sitting in a stands where there's, you know, 30,000 people all ringing cowbells in your ear. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> um,
0: you know... Um, I don't know if I even want to mention the last one I had on my list, um, but Tumor's Corner has to be mentioned in terms of fan traditions. It's one that absolutely sucks if you're the fan getting rolled on, um, but it is one that is another one, very unique, very memorable, um and maybe memorable for the pain if you're on the losing end of having to watch it.
1: It's never bothered me to watch it. I've always just thought that tradition made little sense. And again, I'm, I'm looking at this from crimson colored glasses my entire life to be fair, but I never looked as at rolling something as a celebratory act. I think we've all, when we were teenagers or whatever have gone and rolled people's houses with toilet paper. That's just something you did as, Uh, as as a teenager right being the rebellious teen and and doing those kind of acts but you didn't do it to your own house you didn't go outside and roll your own house you went and did it to your stupid friend so they would have to clean it up i've never understood hey we're excited let's roll our own property like that to me it's just never really made sense my favorite tumors corner Rolling happened, though, during the Final Four when they mistakenly thought they had beaten Virginia and started rolling Toomer's Corner just to turn out that they had lost that game instead. That was funny. I enjoyed that one.
0: Fair enough. Fair (laughs) enough. I figured I would get some kind of reaction out of you with that one, so I had to kind of leave it there for the end. Um, To
1: be fair to Auburn, it's not a fan tradition, but I've always thought, as much as I've disliked the team for my entire life, I've always enjoyed the Eagle flying around the stadium mm. before a game. I know it's not a fan tradition or anything, but I've always thought that's actually cool, so I can you know, at least separate uh, my hatred for the team forever uh, with the fact that that's always been a a tradition I thought was pretty cool and kind of unique. To see that. That's always especially when their fans are kinda going crazy. And that is a tough environment to play in. um, Oh yeah,
0: for sure. Every
1: year. So that that one is actually cool. I actually do enjoy it. The the Rolling Tumors Corner, I get the appeal. And it's definitely something that stands out when you're thinking of fan traditions, but I guess I've never really understood it. But maybe I would if I was on the other side of the rivalry. I don't know.
0: It's amazing what gets ingrained from a young age, you know, for anybody who's a fan, because things that look completely alien to another fan base, you know, even setting aside rivalries, something that looks just completely alien is something like, why? Why? But um, if you're on the side where that's been something that's just something you do from a young age, you know, something that like this equals happiness...
1: Right.
0: It's amazing how college football links those bonds and makes them last for a lifetime.
1: No, I absolutely agree. And there's, again, those those are formative kind of moments for people getting to do that. I can imagine as a a kid who's seen traditions, whether it's Rolling Tumor's Corner, you know, uh, or ringing cowbells or what have you, the fan traditions we've talked about, you know, getting to participate in those events for the first time has to be really something special.
0: Of course. Well, um, I think I'm pretty much set on, you know, those big memorable, memorable traditions for right now. Um, Obviously, if anything pops up for you fans out there listening uh, this week, please shoot us a line on Twitter at JLMitchell93 and at ZBagalki. We'd love to hear some of the fan traditions that have really meant a lot to you. Um, But for now, we're going to be signing out for this week. Thanks again, John. Really great getting to talk to you again.
1: Absolutely. Looking forward to next week.
0: Awesome. Me too. We'll have another great show for you guys again next Wednesday morning. Thanks for tuning in. Have a great week.